again, it's, uh, it may or may not be clear to you why we do that second scripture reading. They, that second scripture reading is always, what we used to do is that someone else besides me would get up at that point in the service and read uh, my sermon text that I was getting ready to get up and read again. Uh, now, you can't hear it too much. But what we started doing, oh, a couple of years ago, is to read another passage of Scripture that's along the theme of the, ta of the passage that I was preaching. And so that's why we do that. C.S. Lewis famously talks about pride in one of the chapters in Mere Christianity, and he, he describes pride as the root of all other sin and a, a complete anti-God state of mind. And he says, the more pride that you have, the more pride in other people bothers you, and the harder it is to see in yourself. Rosaria Butterfield, in her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, sort of riffs on what he says in Mere Christianity. She says, pride is the root of all sin. Pride puffs one up with a false sense of independence. Proud people always feel that they can live independently from God and from other people. Proud people feel entitled to do what they want when they want to. And in Exodus 33, we're going to see a disaster that takes place or the out the aftermath of a disaster that takes place because of the people's pride and what i want you to hear through this text is this statement that it is from taking in all of who god is and surrendering to him that is the only antidote for our pride let me say that again in maybe a little different words we need to take in all of the Word of God to see all that God reveals to us about Himself, not leaving out the parts that we don't like, but look at all of His character and then and surrender to Him as He reveals Himself as the antidote to our pride. This isn't an academic problem. It's not an intellectual. It's not a, there, there's what you know or don't know is a part of that. But at root, it's a, it's a heart problem. It is a spiritual problem. So the book of Exodus begins with baby Moses, which you may remember, and his rescue from the Nile River as the Pharaoh was trying to kill all the, ba all the Hebrew baby boys. And then uh, he is rescued, and, and uh, he grows up and um, has to leave, and he's 40 years in the wilderness and then God calls him at the instant incident of the burning bush and he comes back to Egypt and there's the plagues and then the actual exodus of God leading the people out in his power and they they go through the Red Sea and and God introduces the Passover to commemorate God's mercy and God's rescue of them and then he gives them the 10 commandments and lays out the implications of all of that and then God in his great mercy extends his covenant 
relationship to his people. They having nothing that God needs, but God all in mercy has, as one writer says, uh, gone all out, pulled out all the stops, put his heart on the line, and then the people respond in rebellion in the incident of the golden calf that Tito talked about last week. And the people were confronted and many died. It was a God's mercy that any remain. And so we pick up the story from that point. The power of God's presence. First of all, I want you to see the need for you and I, for us together to grieve the disaster our pride causes. To grieve the disaster our pride causes. Look with me closely, if you will, at the first six verses of chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now... Take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. I need you to notice with me that God is still giving them direction. He is still showing them mercy. They're still alive. He is still fulfilling his promises. He is still sending an angel to go with them. He's still providing. He's going to go before them. He's still going to deliver them the land. Go on up, he says. But then that word, but I will not go up among you. Their sin, their rebellion, their pride had created a separation from God. I want you to note that there are some churches that are actually teaching a form of what is going on here. That to seek God's blessing, but not to seek God. Perhaps it would be healthy for all of us to acknowledge that that has described all of us at one time or another. 
to say, I, I want God's blessing. I want God to do for me what I want him to do for me, and I'm going to be upset with him, and I might even question his existence if God doesn't come through for me the way that I want him to. Do you see there that they, God is still doing what he said he would do, but out of protection for them, he warns, I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way. And, you know, we're pretty tough on the Israelites for all that they saw and that they failed to trust God. But look at the reality. At least they get that when they hear that, the people heard it as a disastrous word. And they, they mourned. They, they mourned the absence of God's presence. They, they grieved over it. And so look again at why God says this is so. You are, you are stiff-necked. They were stiff-necked in this. They, they refused to be led. They refused to trust what God had said. They refused to be patient. Moses had been gone on the mountain. They had been given clear instructions. And they say in the beginning of Genesis 33, we don't even know what's happened to this fellow Moses. And so it's an, they, they're failing to trust that God is actually speaking through Moses, and they're failing to trust what God told them. And so that pride, that stiff-neckedness is what, that's not even a word, but you know what I mean, that is what created the problem. And I, I think there's a danger for us to look at this and not to realize that God is still God. He, his character hasn't changed. And we, I, th I, I think we're in danger of reading something like this and thinking that applies to someone else. That doesn't apply to me. I'm in no danger of this circumstance here. And we fail to allow the Holy Spirit to convict us, to reveal to us the, the, our own ways in which our pride makes it hard for us to trust Hard for us to listen, hard for us to learn, hard for us to be willing to be transformed and to be moved into a different direction. In the book, The Meaning of Marriage, Tim and Kathy Keller say, counselors will tell you that the only flaws that can enslave you are the ones that you are blind to. If you are in denial about some feature of your character, that feature will control you. There is no person in the room or watching me on the live stream who is immune to pride. You have it. It's, it's a problem, and the more that you don't realize that the greater danger that you're in. Are, are you aware of your own pride? Uh, had, to what extent have you been guilty of enjoying what God gives, of receiving God's goodness to you and, and wanting God to bless your work and God to bless your family and God to bless your health and for even God to bless your church, but that we're, we're wanting what God gives but failing to want God and failing to mourn the absence of His presence 
That's what plenty of people would be grateful to have, is to have God's blessing, but not God. One, one way that we see this is uh, our pride is to, to what extent do you talk about your own problems, your own issues, to the extent that, but, but fail to focus on the needs of other people. That's an expression of pride, a refusal to trust God, a refusal to trust His Word. Another way that, that our pride comes into play when, is when we have more confidence in our vision meetings and in our strategy meetings than we have in our prayer meetings. One way to empty a room in many churches to say, we're going to gather to pray. It's hard to get people to come to a prayer meeting. And it's because we're more comfortable talking about what we're going to do instead of pleading with God about what he's going to do. And we have no hope of making a difference in this community and accomplishing God's purpose with our brilliance and our strategies. We need God and we need His activity in us. And you and I, when we, when we hear a sermon or when we read the Bible or when we read a book or some article or something, are we doing that? because we want to learn or we want to grow or we just gathering around ourselves someone who will affirm us in what we already think or believe. This book is our final authority and we, um, we are confident that it is God's inerrant word to us. But our interpretations are not the final authority. And even on the core essential beliefs that we hold, that we know are never going to change, even in those, we need to keep studying and keep seeking God. And we need fresh expressions of those. And we need God to cause those truths to come alive in us. Our pride gets in the way of all of that. In many cases, we won't be learning new facts about these issues, but we'll be going deeper in to what we already know to allow the Holy Spirit to reveal their fuller implications in our lives. To what extent have you been unwilling to be bent unwilling to be moved, allowing the Lord to bring about genuine change in us individually and as a church body. We begin to cooperate with the Lord by confessing our pride, confessing that we've been tempted to not follow leadership that God places and instead to actively yield to the Lord, to surrender to Him, to die to self and to crucify the flesh that may all sound like bondage. Now I have to do what God wants. And it is true that loving God means living by His commands, but belonging to Christ means freedom, not slavery. Don't think of the Christian faith as having to do what a peevish God wants. Think of it as now being able to do what a good God demands. So says Kevin DeYoung in the whole in our holiness. Well, I think I've poked around at that enough. 
And there's some other critical things I want you to see in this text. Maybe I would just mention also, like, like the Israelites, may we, may we grieve our own sin and grieve the distance from God that that can create and focus less on the sins of others and how that bothers us. Taking in all of who God is and surrendering to Him is the only antidote for our pride. So first of all, we've looked at the need to grieve the disaster our pride causes. Secondly, to pursue intimacy with God. Look at verses 7 through 11 with me. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud, that's what represented the presence of God, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So the tabernacle that we looked at in uh, the, the earlier passages between the giving of the Ten Commandments in chapter 20 and to the point we are in the text now is not yet fully set up. So this tent is, is simply a place where Moses goes to pray to meet with God, but also some evidence that it's where other meetings took place as well. But it also, Moses went out and, and Moses was able to worship. Moses was able to pray in a more intimate way than the people were able to do so. The people are able to sort of uh, vicariously experience to, uh, to draw some benefit from seeing that Moses was going, but that the only thing they could do is stand at the entrance of their tent and, and be amazed at seeing this pillar of cloud and realizing that that was happening. But notice the language there. All the way back there in Exodus, the Lord spoke to Moses as a man, face to face as a man speaks to his friend. But did you notice also that last little statement that he says about Joshua? Never really heard anybody pay much attention to that, but it says, let's read it again. Joshua the son, Joshua the son of Nun, a young man, Moses' assistant, would not depart from the tent. I see in that a, 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 a passion, a perseverance in him, a determination to, um, you know, it's, it's, at this stage he is, 
He's not, a, he's not able to experience this at the degree that Moses is, but he's, he's there, he's, he's seeking, he is determined to stay there and seek to encounter God. In the last formal school work I did back in my 40s, it's really the first time I ever actually learned to do research. And one of the things that, that I w was taught was that in, in doing research, you, you have to take in all of, the, all of the data that you gather. And my friend Tim Marshall sitting here was a, was a part of that study, but I, I, I did this huge questionnaire with the church that I was in at the time and, and, and collected all of this information. It was about vision and, and values of volunteers in our church and it was all designed with all the right things and all the right parameters and ethical standards in doing that. And my sense was, and this may be a little oversimplified and it took me a long paper to explain this, but my sense was that people, people were looking for three things. And I, I sense people saying to me, Gene, I need you to help me to connect to God. And I need you to help me to be able to connect with other people. And I need you to be able to help me to find a meaningful way to serve. God has built us as, as relational people. And even if we don't know exactly how to go about it, we sort of sense that what we need is is a connection with God and what we need is a connection with people and what we need is a is a way to to be able to make a difference we don't want to just watch God didn't make us to just sit and watch we we'd like to find a way to actually contribute and so we see this image here of Moses speaking with a man face is Moses speaking with God as a man speaks to his friend and to recognize from a New Testament perspective that is the privilege of every single child of God to be able to experience God intimately in a way that we, we tend to not expect. And so I ask you, are you, are you content to do what the people, the Israelites were doing. They were just, they were standing back and watching. They were watching Moses go to meet with God. But they, they, they couldn't. But now you can. God has opened the door for us to have intimate fellowship with Him through prayer. But there are a lot of believers who are content to just show up at a moment like that and, and get the benefit of someone else having done that. But don't pursue that for themselves. Are you expecting and aiming at a sense of genuine intimacy with God? And, and are you cooperating with the Holy Spirit to cultivate the sort of passion and hunger that, that Joshua showed, that, that even if he couldn't completely connect and didn't completely understand it, he, he persevered? From our perspective, it would be persevering in the Word of God and even in the places we don't understand and, and persevering in engagement in the life of a local church and persevering in small group and connecting with people. 
The New Testament says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I think I've often heard that verse as, as like, you know, okay, um, this is ridiculous, by the way, but, you know, okay, I'll do my part, and God will do his part. But the, the absurd part of that is God's done all the work. He's done all the, he's done all the movement. If God hadn't awakened you to your need for him, you would, you would have never picked up a Bible. You, you wouldn't, on your own, choose to attend a worship service. God's done all the moving, but there is, you have a role. God intends for you to respond to him. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And may we pick up the word of God expecting to encounter him there. We're not just reading a book to learn things. We're reading a book to hear from God and to encounter Him. Taking in all of who God is and surrendering to Him is the only antidote for our pride. It's in this last chunk of text that why I keep saying that becomes clear. We're to grieve the disaster our pride caused. We're to pursue and to expect intimacy with God, and then finally be stunned by God's mercy. Be stunned by God's mercy. Let's look at this last chunk of text. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said... And God said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Some scholars and theologians say that what is happening here is that God is offering to start all over with Moses and to eradicate the people. And part of what is happening here is Moses is praying and interceding with God for the people. And so that's why Moses keeps persisting in this way. Verse 15, he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? And I and your people, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. I was listening, I came across a sermon on this text by David Platt just yesterday not stealing really anything from that sermon, but he said something pretty funny at this point. He said, at, at this point, uh, you know, it would make sense, you know, man, I've had a great moment in the tent today. You know, I've had a great time alone with the Lord. You know, I got to get on about my, um, my business at this point. 
But Moses perseveres, and I'm so glad he did. I mean, he's had this incredible encounter with God, but then in verse 18 he says, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Lots we could have talked about. I just I need you to see a couple of things. First of all, notice Moses' perseverance in intercession. There's a sense in which, and when you look at all, this passage as a whole, that Moses is still haunted by that awful statement in the very beginning, saying, you guys go on. I'll, I'll provide the land for you. I'll bless you, but I'm not going with you because I would destroy you if I did. And Moses, the awfulness of that is still haunted, and so Moses keeps cycling around, uh, requiring multiple assurances from God that that might be different. But then notice also his tremendous humility. I mean, think about him. He is the leader of hundreds of thousands of people. He is incredibly busy. He is knowledgeable. And yet he prays, show me your ways that I may know you. That's an incredible prayer that you can take up and pray just right there as it lies. But then he continues to persevere in seeking God and saying, God, that's not enough. Your assurances are not enough. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God honors that prayer in a, in a mysterious way. It's really curious what God says. I mean, the first thing, God, the, the, the first answer to that is, it is not some majestic show of light, but he, the first thing is he reveals his goodness. He reveals his character. And then he proclaims his name, Yahweh. God proclaims his name. And he reveals his sovereignty. No one will ever and has ever come to God unless God first draws that person to himself. And so God reveals his, his goodness, his character, his sovereignty, but then he also reveals his, his holiness and, and glory, glory, the complete picture in revealing to Moses, no one can see me but live. And this is mysterious, but... God does allow Moses to see something. There's something that Moses sees. And it's not completely clear to us. But what is clear is that God is far more willing to reveal himself to us 
then we have been persevering to seek and to ask. I suppose there's no other way to say it except that my hero growing up, I, I, I really doubt anyone's ever done this with me, but my hero growing up was my pastor. I was, I was amazed by this man. His name is Joe Brown. And God used him greatly, and he went on to use him greatly, still, still serving, still pastoring. But back in 2003, I, I took a sabbatical, a long time ago now, obviously. And one of the things that I wanted to do, I hadn't had much contact with him over the years. He, he was my pastor literally just the four years I was in high school. He, on the day of, I don't know if you know what this is, but in southeastern Kentucky, we had a baccalaureate along with a graduation. It was a prayer service and the graduation. On the, he, he resigned from our church on the day of our baccalaureate. And then I, I didn't have much contact with him over the years. So 20 years later, you know, I've been in ministry for many years at this point, and I, I wanted to see him. And um, so Kat and I worked out for us to be in Charlotte on a weekend where he pastored. And I, I reached out to him just if I, I didn't do it much in advance. It's probably not good planning. But I said, look, Kat and I are in town and we're, we're coming to your church on Sunday morning. And I was just wondering, is there, we're staying over Sunday night. Is there any way that I could have just a few minutes of your time? On Monday, I just love to talk to you and and connect with you. And I'm on this sabbatical, see, and just trying to learn and trying to see what what God's doing to me at this point in my life. This is not a great illustration of what's going on here, but what amazed me was um, the man cleared his calendar. I mean, he was literally a megachurch pastor, and that. You know, Cumberland Baptist Church was maybe 200 people. And um, he, he cleared his calendar, and he spent the entire day with us. Just Cat and I in his office in the morning, and then he got some staff members and, and his wife and a couple, uh, one of his children, I think, was with us, and we all went to lunch together. I was just amazed at the, at the openness and the generosity of time, and, and uh, I kept trying to be serious, by the way, ask him serious questions, and he's making jokes and, and goofing off, but it's just the, his, the willingness to open up his time and his life to us. The stunning nature of all of this is that everything that God reveals about Himself here is still true. That our, our pride, our sin, would separate us from God eternally except for one thing. And that is that the, the righteous wrath of God has been exhausted in Jesus but God's character hasn't changed. And so we're to be stunned and amazed that God invites us into his presence to be able to speak with him as a face-to-face -face as a man speaks with his friend to show us himself in ways that we couldn't even possibly describe, but all still while being a holy God who hasn't lowered his standards, the only hope that any of us have is to run for rescue 
to Jesus and what He accomplished, accomplished on the cross. It's taking in all of who God is and surrendering to Him is the only antidote for our pride because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Fanny Crosby wrote a hymn based on this text. The chorus goes like this. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry, thirsty land. He hideth my life in the depths of his love and covers me there with his hand, and covers me there with his hand. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would you, you have been and you will continue to take this word and bring transformation in us. That you would reveal to us our pride. That you would reveal to us the ways that that is getting in the way. That you would reveal to us our, our lack of imagination and, and faith and expectation that we would pursue intimacy with you. And Father, forgive us for neglecting such a great salvation and failing to be stunned at all that you are and the mercy that you extend to us. And I pray for those under the sound of my voice now and later who have not yet been converted to never actually recognize their need for you and their, their need to acknowledge their sin and to receive or to repent of their sin and then to receive your mercy extended to them because of the cross and giving themselves to you. I pray that in your power that you would accomplish that in these moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.